Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey to the new age of enlightenment. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite and when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body the soul of our country but take my word for it this scourge will stop and uh getting back to freeman's work here and look i know fully well that this podcast may get taken down I need to be careful how I present this podcast as far as title goes. And if it does get taken down, I promise you this. If you want this MP3, I will give it to you. But anyway, Pierre goes on to say that Amork then tells its members how to prepare themselves for sleep. They even tell you how to chew your food, by the way. The goal is to go to sleep in a meditative state. This is accomplished by the member initially lying on his back, face up, and with his hands on the solar plexus. Now, he says, even in their sleep, members can do Rosicrucian exercises. He talks about the time, the significant amount of time spent working on these monographs and how it consumed so much of his life. He says, a mork is not content just to show the value of deep breathing. It attempts to bring the member to believe that deep breathing was invented by a Rosicrucian. Burning incense, sleeping on your back, singing a vowel sound, chewing your food properly, all among these and more involve private facets of your life that are ultimately branded with the amork signature. You learn how to eat, breathe, and sleep in the Rosicrucian way. I mean, uh, he really makes it clear. And, and Amork wasn't really the cause of all this guy's problems. Uh, he was kind of a, a very poor guy, immigrant, who was trying to make it here. And he was living in a very expensive place, you know, San Jose, California, uh, for people who have minimum wage jobs, uh, you know, and, and you know, he was looking to this group, I think, to just make his life better and to give him the direction he needed to be successful. And that wasn't all a Mark's fault, but I think that he does a pretty fair job of explaining how they sucker people in. He says the exercise that follows uses negative breathing, a technique that is opposite of positive breathing. In positive breathing, you inhale and hold the breath for as long as possible. In negative breathing, you exhale and attempt to not inhale for as long as possible. Holding the right thumb between the thumb and index of the left hand, the neophyte is asked to practice negative breathing and observe the effect on the right arm. 
The neophyte is warned to make sure to practice this exercise for two or three minutes. He says in Atrium 2, monograph 10, Amort classifies illnesses into two categories. Now, I think this is interesting because when you look at the origins of the Rosicrucian philosophy in general, one of their main things was alchemy and medicine. And they were supposed to be studying how to heal. And, I mean, you can look directly at the Invisible College, the Royal College, that came from Rosicrucianism. The first scientists were Rosicrucians. So, or at least the first scientists in the modern era. So he says, Amor classifies illnesses into two categories. Illnesses with a fever and illnesses without a fever. As this classification leads to a choice of treatment, when a member experiences an illness, he must first check to see whether he has a fever. In Rosicrucian therapy, someone who has a fever, no matter what the cause of this illness, is evincing a need for negative energy. In this case, you need to use negative breathing treatments. If the illness comes without a fever, default to a positive treatment. He goes into detail in the book, and if you're interested in the book, I can help you find that. And this is the first book, by the way, The Prisoner of San Jose. In Atrium 2, monograph 11, he says, The neophyte again begins a treatment by washing his hands and drinking a glass of water. And we hear that there's different rituals that they teach in these mystery schools uh, about cleansing and washing and all that. So this is very big in Rosicrucianism, the washing of the hands and drinking of the water. He says again, these two things are basic activities in life that will become a trigger that will help release the cult personality, making obtaining the freedom of the mind an almost impossible task. The ritual of washing the hands and drinking the water is a call to compliance, an invocation of the cult personality to the bidding of its master. And if you want to read more about that, he gets into detail in Prisoner of San Jose under the Great White Lodge and Cosmic Masters. You know, I read the book, The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. And one of the interesting things about that, I mean, it's written a long time ago and it was hard to get into, honestly. It's written well, but, you know, it's it's hard. It was hard to hold my attention because, you know, it's... I, I'm not a fan of fiction, and I knew it was fiction, and it's just, it's kind of this uh, kind of quasi-philosophic mumbo-jumbo, really. Uh, Christian Rosenkreutz didn't even exist, and anyway, um, it's kind of walking you in circles and kind of trying to teach you in these hidden ways the the meaning of Rosicrucianism, and I, I don't know, it's, it's just crazy, but... Uh, there, you know, the whole lore of Rosicrucianism with Christian Rosenkreutz was a lie. It, it was never true in the first place. And one of the interesting things that I did not know is the guy who is credited with that book was a Lutheran. The guy actually went on to write Lutheran books, became a Lutheran minister, and so there is a Lutheran link to Rosicrucianism because Martin Luther, one of his symbols was a rose with a cross on it. Now, it did look different than the Rosicrucian cross, if you guys have seen that, the rosy cross. But I've never seen any real, uh, real evidence that Martin Luther was a Rosicrucian. I, I've seen people allude to it. But again, getting into this whole you know, the Catholic versus Protestant and the Orthodox versus Protestant, it's really gets silly, but that's a whole nother subject. Getting back to the Amork teachings, I think it's just really interesting. Uh, Max Heindel was a huge Rosicrucian, and you know, I've talked many times about his book, Freemasonry and Catholicism. 
and and it really helped me to believe what the mystery schools believe and in their battle this hidden battle against the bloodlines of Cain and Seth uh, the sons of water and the sons of fire the sons of Jehovah and the sons of Cain and I gotta say that Heindel had a different organization based on Rosicrucianism apart from Amork. Heindel says, This theory of life does not rest upon speculation, however. It is one of the first facts of the life demonstrated to the pupil of a mystery school. He is taught to watch a child in the act of dying, also to watch it in the invisible world from day to day until it comes to a new birth a year or two later. Then he knows with absolute certainty that we return to earth to reap in a future life what we now sow. Of course, that's about you know reincarnation. He goes on to say, They are great intelligences who always subordinate minor considerations to higher ends, and under their beneficent guidance we are constantly progressing from life to life under conditions exactly suited to each individual. Until in time, we shall obtain to a higher evolution and become supermen. That's again apotheosis, becoming God, the ubermensch that the Nazis were hoping to create, that transhumanists are hoping to create. It goes back to the Garden of Eden once again. Eat of the fruit and be a god. So we'll get into what these guys actually believe when they talk about the Christ in these New Age belief systems and these occult belief systems. They talk about the Christ. You notice they usually don't say Jesus, but every now and then they will. They usually refer to him as the Christ. Now, this is not the Christian Jesus. It's not the same thing. And they don't believe that Jesus will come in human form or in a form that we can see or even speak to as a second coming. They just believe that the Christ is a mindset. It's, um, it's basically the apotheosis of mankind. So when everyone's reincarnated and everyone has learned from their mistakes to become the perfect being, that's when the Christ consciousness, the Christ shall return. That, that's their idea of Christ. Now some believe that there was a physical Jesus on earth who was almost... Um, inhabited by the spirit this Christ spirit uh, and they just believe you know that he died when he was crucified and that spirit went on to ascend into heaven and will come back down onto earth so they talk about the Christ and Heindel says how shall we know Christ at his coming he says this book and this is a Rosicrucian book called The Rosicrucian Mysteries by him, by Heindel. Uh, it tells us that Christ will return in etheric, not a physical body. Hence, mankind must develop the etheric body to the point where they can function in it consciously before Christ will return. Then they will possess the inner spirituality and the perception by which they will be able to recognize him. Again, not actually him, but them becoming enlightened and illuminated, fully illuminated. There's a story, an infamous story amongst Amork members about the founder, Harvey Spencer Lewis, who would do these speaking engagements back in the day. And he was accidentally booked to do two engagements on one night in completely different areas of the country. And the legend goes that somehow he was physically at both locations at the same time speaking. Which is ridiculous, but, you know, it's one of those legends that they actually believe. So I found this on a forum called theculteducation.com. It says that S-G-L-A-M-O-R-C is a private nonprofit corporation and the trademark and wordmark owner of all the Rosicrucian order Amork documents. The legal issue is, can any legally registered corporation claim a historical pedigree prior to the corporate registration? Rosicrucian order Amork corporate structure USA. 
So S-G-L-A-M-O-R-C stands for Supreme Grand Lodge of the Ancient Mystical Order Rose Crucis. It says extracts from the Certificate of Amendment and Restatement of the Articles of Incorporation of the Supreme Grand Lodge of the Ancient Mystical Order of the Rosicrucius. Christian Bernard and Donna O'Neill certify that they are the President and Secretary, respectfully, of the Supreme Grand Lodge of the Ancient Mystical Order of the Rosicrucius, a Californian nonprofit public benefit corporation. The Articles of Incorporation of this corporation are hereby amended and restated as set forth in the attached amended and restated Articles of Incorporation. This is like legal mumbo-jumbo, but it says it was signed by Christian Bernard and Donna O'Neill in 1990. And the document states that the registered name and address of the corporation, and it gives their address in San Jose. It says that they basically, you know, there was a big lawsuit. There's been all these infighting lawsuits and battles between different Rosicrucian organizations over the decades. You know, one saying they're the original, the other saying they're the original. One has the information to make you, <laughs> to make you a god, of course, that goes back from, you know, to antiquity. And, uh, you know, of course, the other says the same thing. But I put all this in there if you guys want to check it out. Uh, it's, you know, it's just a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo. But it does get down towards the end of some of the uh, different ideas that were set forth or put forth. So the guy that started it, uh, Harvey Spencer Lewis, you know, we've talked about him a lot here. So there's something called the Toulouse Adventure. And it says, I guess this was his, uh, he wrote this document out basically saying how he was initiated. And I guess he's trying to say that that's what gave him the original power to start a morgue. But eventually, it says here, another indication that the Toulouse adventure is an invention of Harvey Spencer Lewis is a document which belongs to the files of the F-U-D-O-S-I, in which Harvey Spencer Lewis states that the whole story of his initiation in Toulouse is an invention of Lewis himself. This document is in the hands of the successor of Gene Mallinger. It says another interesting article, The Sun, June 19, 1918. In this article concerning Lewis's arrest, H. Spencer Lewis states that he never claimed to be operating a Rosicrucian branch affiliated to the French Rosicrucians. Here's an excerpt of it. Grand Imperator grieved at arrest spent night in a cell. Half a dozen detectives attached to the district attorney's office were examining effects, meaning sateen sashes, robes, and other regalia taken in the raid of the headquarters of the so-called American Order of the Rosicrucians. Grand Imperator Lewis was arrested on Monday night in a spectacular raid on the headquarters of this organization in the old Lily Langtree House at 361 West 23rd Street. From his home in Flushing last night, Lewis told a reporter from The Sun that at no time had his organization, the Ancient and Mystical Order of the Rosicrucius, ever claimed to be operating as a branch of the Rosicrucius organization in France. We have never claimed to hold any warrant, charter, patent, or authority from any foreign country, he said over telephone. Among the papers seized in Lewis's desk on Monday night is a piece of parchment headed Pronunziamento, RFRC, number 987601. The document is adorned with a number of crude seals dated Toulouse, France, September 20th, 1916, and signed by Jean Jordan. After the signature follows a series of hieroglyphics, and in the body of the document addressed to Le Secretary General Thos Kilimento, appears the announcement that a separate jurisdiction of the Rosicrucius has been established in America. 
uh, finishing up here, the files on the FUDOSI belonging to Leon Lelars, Sar Agni, secretary of Emile Dantian, were discovered in 1982 by Serge Calliet. The file consisted of many documents concerning the activities of the FUDOSI and Emile Dantian. Without these documents, a lot of information on this forum would not be published. Serge Callier used these documents to write a book called Sar Hieronymus et la FUDOSI. And that was published in 1986 by Kara Paris. Anyway, uh, it says here that a good starting point in separating the historical Rosicrucian from the modern marketing hype is the book Rosicrucian Enlightenment by Francis A. Yates. Well, you know, I'm doing this show kind of backwards because I started with a Mork instead of starting with the origins of the Rosicrucians, which I mentioned was murky at best, but I'm going to read from this book, Secret Societies, that Michael Aquino suggested. It's a book with various authors about different societies, so I think that uh, I read through this one. I've got like multiple books that talk about the Rosicrucians, but this is the most concise, and I thought it was the best of all the books. So we'll start here. It says, In August 1623, a number of extraordinary notices appeared in the streets of Paris. You know, I mentioned that in the first half when I talked about the book, The Morning of the Magicians, but we'll read it again. They proclaimed, We deputies of the principal college of the Brethren of the Rosy Cross are staying visibly and invisibly in this town by the grace of the Most High, to whom the heart of the just returns. We show and teach, without books or masks, how to speak the language of every country where we wish to be, to bring our fellow men out of the error of death. It says, according to one contemporary account, the first response to this announcement came from a lawyer who was heavily in debt and wanted to learn how to make himself invisible to his creditors. He succeeded in finding the mysterious Rosicrucians who agreed to teach him their secrets, but they wined and dined him so well beforehand that when they initiated him by immersing him in the river, he drowned. Now this story, though obviously satirical in intention, indicates something of the controversy and the obscurity that surrounds the early years of the Rosicrucians. Their nickname, the Invisibles, refers to as much to their elusiveness as to their claims to supernatural powers. The word Rosicrucian itself gives us a further idea of the difficulty that attends any factual study. It is generally supposed to be derived from the Latin rosa, rose, and crux, cross. And certainly the rose and the cross have always been the symbol of the Rosicrucian societies. The same symbols occur on the seal used by Martin Luther and in the family arms of the Lutheran deacon Johann Andrea, who, as we shall see, may or may not have been the originator of the Rosicrucians. The Christian significance of the cross and of the rose stained with Christ's blood might appear to answer all questions, but the cross may not be a Christian cross at all. Both the rose and the cross are found with numerous meanings in the symbolism of the Jewish Kabbalah. For the alchemists, the cross denoted the four elements. For Hindus, it is the symbol of creation. For some medieval writers, it was code for light. The rose is identified with the sun, the central element in Zoroastrian worship. It is the Egyptian symbol of rebirth. It is connected with the Lakshmi, the Hindu goddess of love and creation. The Rosalia was a Dionysian festival, and the mysteries at Eleusis were associated with Dionysus, reminding us of the troubadours' connection with the Albigensians, a disguised survival of the pre-Christian religion. In fact, the rose is also a symbol of secrecy. In this sense, Cupid used it to cover illicit amours, and the expression sub rosa derives from the rose hung in late medieval times above the council table to show that all present 
or sworn to secrecy. So just so you know, this book is coming from more of a mystic's point of view. So there's going to be certain points of view and beliefs, biases and different things like that. But like I said, it to me has given more information about the Rosicrucians than I could find in other places. So we'll uh, look a little bit deeper into that because there's some really good stuff in here. The largest and most active modern Rosicrucian societies tell us that the rose at the center of the cross represents the physical body of man with arms outstretched to the sun in the east, which depicts the greater light. And as though this were not confusion enough, there's another school of thought that derives the first syllable of Rosicrucian, not from Rosa at all, but from Ros, R-O-S, the Latin word for dew, dew being considered by the alchemists to be a powerful solvent. But this is only to scratch the surface of the subject. It is discussed for 27 pages by A.E. Waite in his book, The Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross. If we are to describe Rosicrucianism in the terms customary among historians, only one course appears possible. This is to take as a point of departure its first incontestable document, the Fama Fraternis of Meritorious Order of the Rosy Cross, published in Germany in 1614. To examine it in relation to the social and intellectual atmosphere of the time and place, and finally to trace the overt record of Rosicrucianism's shadowy and broken past as it is to the present day. I think I mentioned this on New York Patriots show the other day, but you know he brought to my attention that so many of these different secret societies were brought about in Germany. So I think that's something that is very interesting to note. Germany in the 17th century presented a scene of doubt and confusion. The conflicts and striving of the preceding epoch had led neither to unity nor good achievement or good government, nor to much improvement in the conditions of life. A prey to the selfish rivalries of its own petty princelings and of its more powerful neighbors, the country felt the threats that were soon to become realities in the misery and chaos of the Thirty Years' War. Now this is a interesting part of Rosicrucianism, and as I said, this is coming more from a mystic's point of view, but uh, the Protestant link in there, uh, it's not been exactly proven, but it's highly believed that this fellow, this deacon who became a minister, Johann Andrea, who was a Lutheran, did write The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. So we'll get more into that here. Protestants especially had cause for depression. The Catholic Church, far from collapsing as they had hoped, had launched the Counter-Reformation and had regained a great deal of the lost ground. Thinking men were in search of an intellectual and spiritual equipment more profound and potent than the ideas they had inherited from Martin Luther. Somewhere they believed there was a hidden wisdom. Its character, gropingly apprehended, was in part mystical, in part scientific. The aim pursued was to probe the secrets in the language of the period the mysteries of the natural world, and so to gain a new degree of power over it. Any clues might be worth following up, whether they came from the great civilizations of the past, from the culture of the East, or from speculative minds whose pioneering efforts had been dismissed by their contemporaries. Naturally, in the still undeveloped state of scientific method, it was almost impossible to distinguish between fact, fantasy, and sheer charlatanism. Alchemy, for instance, might be a process symbolic of the spiritual development or merely an unsuccessful conjuring trick with the mundane purpose of making gold on the cheap. Yet, some of the ideas of the alchemists showed flashes of insight that strangely foreshadowed modern conceptions of the structure of nature and of chemistry based on the analysis of elements validated centuries later by science. A modern parallel in that we cannot be sure where wishful fantasy ends and investigation into another order of reality begins. 
is in the field of telepathy and extrasensory perception. And it shows, if you're not familiar, with the logo of Martin Luther. And it's not a big cross with a rose in the middle. Actually, it's a round circle with a rose taking up the whole circle with a small cross in the middle. And it looks like the cross has a heart shape behind it. So it's a bit different. And he gets into how scholars were looking back at Egypt and Thoth and all these different things, Hermes. So he talks about books that were being circulated at the time that kind of built the kind of thinking that was going on. And he's talking about the Pimander or On the Power and Wisdom of God. Uh, let's see what else. The Perfect Word, the Sefer Gatzira, the Zohar, different things like that. And he talks about the Kabbalist influence of Rosicrucianism, which you can see for sure as you look into it deeper. So he goes on to talk about the first book about Rosicrucianism. Their first manifesto is what they call it. And it was in 1614, the Fama Fraternis. It was this document that first announced to Europe, to whom it was addressed, to make their sympathies publicly known. And they were assured that if they did so, they would hear from the fraternity. Readers were promised that if they would desert their false teachers, the Pope, Galen, or Aristotle, and join the order, they would attain a deeper knowledge of nature and a share of bringing about a general reformation of the world. Though the authors promised their followers more gold than both the Indies bring to the King of Spain, they condemned the gold-making of the alchemists as ungodly and accursed, implying that the riches they themselves valued were spiritual, not material. The main part of the Fama Fraternis related to the life and death of Christian Rosencruz, a mythical figure described as the founder of the order. According to the Fama, Rosencruz was born in 1378 of a noble family in poor circumstances. At the age of four, he was placed in a monastery. When still in his growing years, he set out with a monk on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But the monk died in Cyprus, and Rosencruz stayed in Damascus, where he became well known for his medical skill. Now, keep in mind, this is all just a story. This is, this is made up. They made up like a you know, a whole past for this Rosencruz to base the secret society on. Then he went to Damkar, a city stated to be in Arabia, but apparently mythical, which was the home of wise men to whom nature was discovered. The wise men, who had been expecting him, taught him Arabic, physics, and mathematics, and introduced him to the book M, which contained the secrets of the universe, in which he translated into Latin, having studied botany and zoology in Egypt, and magic and the Kabbalah at Fez. He was equipped to teach the learned of Europe how to order all their studies on those sure and sound foundations. Since he was not permitted in Spain, he returned to Germany and began work on a book containing whatsoever can be desired or hoped for by man. In this book, he was assisted by seven monks from the monastery where he had grown up. When they had completed their book, the eight decided to form the Fraternity of the Rosy Cross and to live in a different country where they might all influence learned men. Before dispersing, they agreed to profess nothing but the cure of the sick without payment, not to distinguish themselves by any particular costume, and to meet annually in Germany to nominate their successors before dying and to adopt the initials R.C. as their seal, and also to keep their fraternity secret for 100 years. The family also declared that Rosencruz had died in 1484 at the age of 106 and had been buried in a hidden tomb. In 1604, you may have heard about this. In 1604, this tomb had been discovered by the authors of the Fama. It lay behind a concealed door bearing the words, I shall open after 120 years. 
Inside was a seven-sided vault lit by mysterious luminary sets in the roof. In the center stood an altar beneath which they found the body of Rosencruz, whole and unconsumed. The tomb also contained a chest of mirrors of diverse virtues. A parchment entitled The Book T and described as our greatest treasure next to the Bible, and a dictionary, not otherwise known, compiled by Paracelsus. The fama gave no hint as to the whereabouts of the tomb. It ended as quickly as it begun, with the assertion that true philosophers would see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending, and would have their names written in the Book of Life. The authors gave no clues to their identity beyond the assurance that they were Lutherans. But in spite of this, and in spite of its obscure symbolism, the Fama was received by intellectuals with something of an excitement that might mark the publication of a revolutionary political manifesto today. It was read not only in German, but also in other European countries, in three years, it ran into nine different editions, as well as several translations into Latin and Dutch. The Fama was soon followed by two other books, the Confessio Fraternus Rosicrucius in 1615 and the Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosencruz in 1616. The Confessio gave further details regarding admission to the order stressing that it was open to men of any social class, and that its only aim was the pursuit of true wisdom, and adding, as a matter of interest, that it possessed more gold and silver than the rest of the world. I don't know, it's kind of mixed signals there, right? They're talking about they only do that for to, you know, to bring about spiritual gold, but then they're saying that they have all this gold and silver. So I don't know. That's kind of weird there, right? Kind of a contradiction. The Chemical Wedding is a more puzzling work. An elaborate allegorical romance in which a mythical king and queen are married with a great deal of weird ceremony. The book opens with an account of Rosencruz's deliverance from the Dungeon of Ignorance. And his journey to the wedding at which he appears after many ordeals, as the guest of honor. The title of the book indicates that its symbolism is that of alchemy. The text suggests that this alchemy is not the transmutation of base metals into gold, but the regeneration of the soul. Nevertheless, some scholars regard the book as purely imaginative works of an earlier date, having little to do with the Rosicrucians. Others see it as a destructive satire designed to exaggerate and thus discredit Rosicrucian mysticism. But in one respect, that of authorship, more is known about the chemical wedding than about the fama or the confessio. It was written by Lutheran Johann Valentin Andrea, as he himself revealed in his autobiography. As a young man, Andrea ran the intellectual gamut of his age. He studied astronomy, mathematics, optics, and philosophy at Tübingen, and during the studies was attracted to millenarian and visionary forms of religion in defiance of the Lutheran Church. However, he became a Lutheran deacon in 1614 at the age of 28 and apparently remained a staunch upholder of Lutheranism for the rest of his life. Three considerations have inclined historians to place Andrea as the author of the Fama and the originator of Rosicrucianism. He certainly wrote The Chemical Wedding, and in the years leading up to 1614, he was an enthusiastic advocate of various unorthodox plans for Christian Union, including one in the form of an idea republic to be called the City of the Sun. As the French writer Paul Arnold shows in his recent history of the Rosicrucians, Andrea's circle of friends at Tübingen was deeply interested in Hermeticism, Kabbalism, and Christian mysticism. The probability is that the Fama was produced jointly by members of this circle, chief among them being Andrea Wilhelm Wentz, who played an active part in the Christian Union project, 
and the Hebrew and Greek scholar Christoph Basold, who later became a Catholic. One apparent objection to this argument is that in later books, Andrea later wrote as an Orthodox Lutheran in which he made repeated attacks on the Rosicrucians. But as Arnold points out, all Andrea's condemnations of the Rosicrucians are carefully qualified. In his Turris Babel of 1619, and that's spelled T-U-R-R-I-S-B-A-B-E-L, he observed, In all their writings there is something useful to be found, and in his will of 1634 he wrote, Though I now leave the fraternity itself, I shall never leave the true Christian fraternity, which beneath the cross smells of the rose and is quite apart from the filth of this century. And it goes on and on, but uh, I think that was pretty darn interesting. And you can find online, of course, people dispute the fact that Andrea even wrote The Chemical Wedding, but I think for the most part, it's widely accepted that he did at least write that. Some of the more famous members would have been Robert Flood, uh, Francis Bacon, Sir Isaac Newton. But uh, he goes into some more stuff here. He kind of goes into detail about how really the New Age came about, but that's not what he calls it. And he's talking about Eliphas Levy, who I guess was either a Rosicrucian or you know had similar beliefs. It says, during the latter part of the 19th century, a tremendous impetus to esoteric studies came from two sources. In France, the Kabbalistic writings of Abbe Constant, better known as Eliphas Levy, prepared the ground for proliferation of so-called Rosicrucian societies under the leadership of the Marquis Stanislas de Guata and the eccentric Joseph Peladon. The influence of Levy's Dogma et Ritual de la Haute Magie in 1861, was reinforced in the English-speaking world by the publication of Madame Blavatsky's Isis Unveiled and Secret Doctrine after the foundation of the Theosophical Society in 1875. And if you guys have listened to, I want to say it's like the third edition episode about Freemasonry, we talk about how... Uh, Eliphas Levy was a huge influence on Albert Pike, and Pike took a bunch of Levy's writings, almost word for word, and put them in Morals and Dogma. And he gives a little bit of an example of why Rosicrucianism and Theosophy differed in certain aspects. He says, The appeal of the Theosophical movement and that of Rosicrucian societies of the period can be partly explained by the powerful combination of the paradoxes inherent in the teachings. While they rejected atheism, they were also anti-clerical, thereby providing a channel for the religious aspirations of the people who were dissatisfied with the Orthodox Church teachings. They protested against the gross materialism of modern science, though they themselves were at pains to employ scientific language. To a generation shaken in its faith by the facts of natural evolution, they held out the hope of a spiritual evolution, a hope formerly held only by small minorities in the West. The first of the modern Rosicrucian societies was the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia. It established in 1865. The society was an offshoot of Freemasonry, and its membership was confined to Master Masons. Its stated aims were to afford mutual aid and encouragement in working out the general problems of life and in discovering the secrets of nature, to facilitate the study of the systems of philosophy founded upon the Kabbalah and the doctrines of Hermes. Members were also concerned in the study and the administration of medicines, and in their manufacture upon old lines, they taught and practiced the curative effects of colored light and cultivated mental processes believed to induce spiritual enlightenment, and also an extension of the human senses, especially in the direction of clairvoyance and clairaudience. Among the Society's leading members were the London coroner, Dr. Wynne Westcott, who became its third supreme magus, 
and the museum curator McGregor Mathers, who was a translator of the Zohar. In 1887, Westcott came across some papers containing instructions on magic rites and Kabbalist doctrine. To pursue these studies, he opened the Temple of Isis, Urania, and founded a new society called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. This Golden Dawn had no relation to Freemasonry and was open to men and women. It had connections and some overlap of membership with the Theosophical Society. In fact, Madame Blavatsky drew on the same sources of ancient wisdom as the Rosicrucians, while Mrs. Annie Bizant, her pupil, believed Francis Bacon and Comte de Saint-Germain to be reincarnations of Christian Rosencruz. The point of variance was the study of magic, of which the Theosophists disapproved. The Golden Dawn made a considerable appeal to artists and poets, especially to the Irish. Its members included poet W.B. Yeats, expelled from the Theosophical Society for Magical Practices, George Russell, the writer, A.E., the Irish patriot Maud Gaughan, the theater manager Annie Horniman, and the novelist Algernon Blackwood. The bond with the Irish was forged by Mathers, who was an enthusiast for Celtic tradition and adopted the title of Count of Glenstray. So, that gets a little bit into the Golden Dawn, but it comes right back to the Rosicrucians and the different Rosicrucian societies that were formed around that time. They were kind of in competition with one another. It gets in there, and, and it mentions Crowley a little bit too, but we won't worry about that right now. And we'll do a show later on down the line on the Golden Dawn for sure, but he's talking about another Rosicrucian society, and it was formed by Eliphas Levy, a figure revered by Golden Dawn and a strong influence on Mathers in his Paris period. This was the Kabbalistic Order of the Rosy Cross, founded in 1889. The society was essentially a revolt against Freemasonry, which in its view had lost all the spiritual and philosophical meaning and was dominated by Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Disregarding their Lutheran origins, Rosicrucian societies had long admitted Catholics to membership. As the rules of 1710 show, Levy and his friends now asserted that the order must be exclusively Catholic. The history of the French order, however, followed much the same course as that of the British. The study of Hermeticism and Kabbalism was submerged in personal rivalries and public scandals. Then came a split into the two rival orders and expulsions ordered by Joseph Peladon, one of the founder members, and evidently a French Mathers. Arnold's records that a fragment of the order was still in existence at the outbreak of World War II. Now, I know that I have talked a lot here, I'm reading a lot, but uh, this is coming right to a mork, so we are kind of doing a full circle, so bear with me just a little bit longer, and then we'll wrap up here. It was from this branch of the ancient tree, however, that Rosicrucianism was transplanted to America, or one might say revived, for Rosicrucian groups had been known there since the 18th century. H. Spencer Lewis a New York advertising man and clearly an outstanding organizer joined Peladon's order in France in 1909. In 1915, he founded an order in the United States called the Ancient Mystical Order Rosicrucius, or a Mork, which today claims the right to call itself the true authorized Rosicrucian organization. Its headquarters in Supreme Temple are located at San Jose, California, in an extensive group of buildings that includes an Oriental Egyptian museum, an art gallery, a Rose Croix University, a science museum and planetarium, and a research library. The idea of a small select membership has been abandoned. AMORC has 60,000 members in America alone, Keep in mind, this book was written in like 1967, so I'm not sure the amount right now, but I presume it's more than 60,000. It says it has as well as divisions in Britain, France, Germany, Switzerland, and Africa. 
Its publications are marked by a shallowness typical of many American bodies devoted to self-improvement and to simplified brands of religion and philosophy. They are secret only in the sense that they are not offered for consideration and criticism, of which outsiders are deemed incapable. Amork recruits through advertising in the press. Those who answer its advertisements receive a pamphlet called Mastery of Life. The introductory pamphlet is intended, in the words of its concluding note, for careful and discreet distribution only to those who seem worthy of admission to the order. Well, I guess I'm worthy because I gave them my email and they sent me this PDF. Designed, in fact, to reach people who have expressed an interest and taken the initiative to secure it, the pamphlet is not on sale at bookstalls or shops, although you can get it on Amazon Prime for free in their uh, Kindle version. You can get a ton of Amork books for free if you've got Prime. Its tone is confidential and personal. Its appeal, not to the learned and great, but to the common man, with, it is suggested, an hour or so a week to devote to Rosicrucianism. The reader is promised the opportunity to reshape his life and invited to become a student member by sending a fee to his regional office. He is assured that the teachings are within the grasp of anyone who is able to read and understand his daily newspaper, a far cry from the rarefied wisdom of that which the Fama Fraternus spoke. The object of these teachings is not the reformation of the world so much as the efficient functioning in the world as it is. In one leaflet, a salesman testifies that the application of Rosicrucianism principles has enabled him to knock the T out of Kant. With that, we think about everything that Pierre Freeman had mentioned. And I don't believe that I got into it in the first uh, episode, but Pierre was a Haitian immigrant, and it's kind of odd, I guess, that it's just a coincidence that Haiti is in the news once again for the assassination of their president. But uh, Pierre came to the States very, very poor and worked some really, really low-wage jobs. But for years and years and years, he kept going to these Amork meetings, and he kept going through his monographs, and he kept thinking his life was going to change. And uh, even explains how he wouldn't take medicines, he wouldn't do normal things that would help you to feel better or get off the ground financially because he was dependent upon Amork and their teachings, and he thought that through them it would bring him personal prosperity. Now, I'll read just a little bit more, and then we'll uh, hang this one up. Applicants must declare their belief in a supreme being or mind, but need not declare themselves to be Christians. They are encouraged to attend a lodge meeting, but may confine themselves to private study of the lessons through which they can progress by degrees from neophyte to adept. The ritual of the first degree, as one might expect in view of its 18th or 19th century source, is very similar indeed to the third or master mason's degree of Freemasonry. The lessons themselves include such topics as the mysteries of time and space, the human consciousness, the nature of matter, perfecting the physical body, the effect of light, color, and sound upon the mind and body, ancient philosophies, the development of will, human emotions and instincts, and the phenomena of intuition. We kind of went over that in the first episode, but these topics are clearly related to the interests of the 19th century Rosicrucian societies. Their relation to the ideas behind the original Rosicrucian manifestos is more difficult to find, unless it lies in the paradoxical combination of magic and mysticism that characterizes Rosicrucianism. Alchemy, for instance, is understood in its symbolic sense as a model for spiritual development. Yet in June 1916, Dr. Spencer Lewis gave a public demonstration of practical alchemy in New York. According to Rosicrucian reports, transmuted a piece of zinc into gold after 16 minutes during which he concentrated a little-known power of mind. 
And there's quite a few different legends about this Spencer Lewis, uh, like sensational legends. And finishing up here, it says, As we have seen, the broken history of Rosicrucianism does not matter to the Rosicrucian who is taught that interruptions are inevitable. He might also argue, more convincingly, that the real history is not that of an institution, but a body of knowledge. The outside observer finds the history of Rosicrucianism obscure and discontinuous, difficult to place in the development of human thought and action. Its appeal has seldom been great. Only twice has it attracted any of the outstanding minds of the time at its presumed origin in Germany, and when Yeats and his circle joined the Golden Dawn. Its effect on social and political events has been even slighter, and the world has scarcely been influenced, much less reformed, by its existence. Whether its students have imbibed more knowledge or nonsense is an open question. At least it can be said that compared with many secret societies, the Order of the Rosy Cross has not done much harm. So, I think that Rosicrucianism has actually had a lot more influence than I originally thought, and I think that it is the roots of modern New Ageism. And uh, obviously it played an influence on Blavatsky. And we see Marshall Mathers who influenced Crowley. And so I think we can see that there is, you know, they call themselves the Invisible Ones, the, you know, the Invisible College for a reason. And we'll probably do a part three and go into some of Manly P. Hall's writings about how about how Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism were aligned. And we'll go into Michael Howard's views on Rosicrucianism. He was another occult writer. So I think that uh, we'll cover a little bit more and uh, we'll look again at Pierre Freeman's work. I actually was able to find two more PDFs on Scribd of his work. So apparently he actually wrote six books. And as I said in the first episode, you can't find any of them. So I looked at Amazon.com again for Amork Unmasked. And it was $1,999. The only paperback on there. No PDFs, of course. No ebooks, no Kindles. So obviously, this guy put out some information that they absolutely did not want to get out. So we'll wrap it up right there. Once again, thank you for listening. I hope you dug this episode. So I want to thank all my patrons for your support. Thank you, Greg, David, Aaron, Kilowatt, Kathleen, Cody, Sir Tim of the Tunnels, Rob, Aaron, James, and Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Thank you for your support. If you guys want to join the Patreon... I'm putting this one up early, a week early. So you can join the Society of the Cryptic Savants. I'm going to be doing more stuff this week on there, exclusive to Patreon. And uh, I really appreciate your support. It's patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. Hit me up on Twitter. Hit me up on Instagram, Gab, Facebook. It's underscore the odd man out on Instagram and Twitter. And there you have in the bio the link tree with all the other platforms. You can subscribe to my bit shoot as well. And like I said, once again, I appreciate everyone listening. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.